The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. So if you've got your copies of God's Word, you need to turn with me to our home text um, uh, this Sunday in Genesis, uh, for this Sunday night in Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. Now, I'd also want to tell you that you really, really need to have your Bibles ready. Your old, as I say, your old youth group sword drill days are back upon you. I'm going to send you through the Bible because there's some things I want to substantiate for you concerning the sanctity of the doctrine of God. That is who God is. And I would like to do that with you tonight to some very important things. We kind of laid out some dynamics of it, uh, some basic information last week. And I ask you to join with me for part two on the sanctity of God in this foundation number two, the foundations from Genesis looking at God's blueprint for life. Before I read Genesis 1-1, if I can just say one more, uh, say another time to make sure we've got this in context. Uh, I took the time to de- develop a whole series of sermons, there were nine of them, around what I see as a movement of Christianity that is cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity because it has the same motivation and the same mission. It has the motivation of cultural relevance and the mission of cultural transformation, which is something surely I want to see happen as a consequence of the church on mission, but it's not the church's mission. The world gets turned upside down as a consequence, which is really right side up, but the world gets turned upside down when the church is on its narrow mission of making disciples, that is, sinners being turned transformed. And when sinners are transformed, and then we begin to take our gospel message uh, that saturates the whole counsel of God, then we begin to turn out Christians and their mission is broad and comprehensive, salt of the earth. Well, we just sung it. I couldn't help but thinking as we were singing that uh, how we the, that that we would uh, that Christ through us would be the light to the world and the salt of the earth. And uh, the Bible tells us that's our broad mission. We are to do justice. We are to love mercy. We are to walk humbly with God. We are to uh, love the Lord with all our heart, mind, and soul, and our neighbor as ourselves. We are called of the Lord uh, to make Christ preeminent in every sphere of life. You see, we know that God is sovereign over everything in life, and we are to live with that confidence as we penetrate every area of life. But Christians can't do their broad mission if the church gets off of its narrow mission. And its mission is to make disciples. And its message is comprehensive. The whole counsel of God with the gospel as the foundation, the formation, and the motivation of the Christian life. 
Now, knowing and seeing this movement outside in the secular progressive revolution and uh, in the culture and knowing that the movement is inside the church, the evangelical church is experiencing what the mainline Protestant church experienced from liberal Christianity. And it is now experiencing theological adulteration. Why? Because whatever your mission and your whatever your motivation and your mission is, will eventually define your message. And therefore, you have theological, um, theological adulteration and theological apostasy. What is the best defense of this? Well, the best defense is to be on mission, on message, and in ministry. And that means, as a pastor, I have to be committed to the mission of the church, which is Make disciples through evangelism and discipleship. Believers who know how to do the ministry of worship to God, upreach. The ministry of outreach and personal evangelism. The ministry of inreach as we learn to love one another well and then together reach out in love to the world to speak the truth in love. And then also to grow deep. The ministry of downreach discipleship as we are growing and not for grace but growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so I have uh, chosen this year at the approval of the session in this theme of lifestyle stewardship to try to bring to you, first of all, the time-tested, biblically founded 13 essentials of 13 foundational essentials of the Christian's life of the Christian life as given to us in the Apostles Creed. And we took the time to do that. And then with the break to look at biblical historic Christianity and in opposition to contemporary progressive Christianity, I then asked that you would. And, you know, this is this is one of those moments where. Uh, um, well, let me put it this way. As a pastor, I always feel a little uncomfortable right here, like on a Sunday evening service. And, you know, you kind of want to say, well, thank you all all for being here. But, you know, really, <laughs> that's not appropriate when you really think about it. Because what we ought to be doing is thanking the Lord for allowing us to be here. <laughs> that's what we ought to be doing. But I do feel, as a pastor, the deep gratitude to be able to invest in the lives of those who want to go to these, what I'm calling the 15 effective foundations, from the 13 essential to the 15 effect. And what I want to do is simply draw them all out of the book of Genesis, these foundations in life from the book of Genesis. And in Psalm 11, I tried to share with you as we opened up that Satan, in his assault, attempts to shake the foundations. And Psalm 11 says, what will the righteous do? when the foundations are shaken. Well, what they do is they first take refuge, not in the foundations, but in the Lord. In the Lord, I take refuge. And then understand the foundations are the sanctities of God's, of what God has provided for us in terms of who God is, what God has done, and what is he doing in us, and how then shall we live in light of that, these foundations for the Christian life. So I wanted to draw them out of the book of Genesis because 
what the scripture does is enlarge and expound on what is introduced in the book of Genesis, which is creation, the fall, redemption, and the consummation. Those four great movements of God, creation, then the fall of sin that God responds to, and then redemption, and then uh, of, of how God redeems of sinful people who are, who are lost and unable to redeem themselves to his glory, and then the consummation. Those are the four great acts of God, and it's in that God that we take refuge. Well, who is he? I mean, it's one thing to say, well, in God, I take refuge. Well, is he capable? Uh, Who is he that you're taking refuge in? This is so important that Jesus made an astonishing statement. He says in Genesis 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you know God. Know, ology, God, theo. That theology is not a sidetrack. It's not an abstraction. It is to come into an accurate and intimate knowledge of who God is, the one who created you, the one who redeems you, the one who every day sustains you, the one who one day will bring all things to a consummation. Who is he? Who is he who is worthy of our worship, who is who is dependable upon whom we trust, who is, you just sung it, mighty to save, who is able to deliver us from the adversity, through the adversity, into his presence. Who is he? Folks, I am absolutely convinced that if we don't, see who God is and therefore the greatness of our God as we again just sung. Well, I, I just, I was sitting down there, you know, Lord, I can't get much better than this. Just, you know, I'm, I was ready for a Star Trek moment. Uh, beam me up, God. Uh, just, I'm ready to go. But, uh, but as we sing that, as we behold him, as we put our trust in him, who is like him, how Great is our God. Well, just how great is he? Just how great is he? Now, you're probably sitting there, some of you thinking and saying, Now, Harry, wait just a minute. How come we're looking, if God is so great and it's so important for us to know him intimately and accurately and personally, now you'll never know him exhaustively. I mean, even in eternity, you'll never know him exhaustively. You'll know him intimately, accurately, and personally, but you'll never know him exhaustively. But, it, but if, if this is so crucial, Harry, why is it sanctity number two? Because you can't know God without sanctity number one. Sanctity number one is God is light and his nature is to reveal himself. Sanctity number one is divine revelation. And we've learned that it had two parts to it. It had general revelation, and that is God making himself known in creation and in providence. And then secondly, 
the, the importance of the primacy of God's special revelation in his word through which we get. Now, remember our words, three F's. Remember them? We get our framework, we get our filter, and we get our focus. God's word gives us the framework through which to deal with the claims of general revelation and the propositions from general revelation. God's, God only gives us a framework so that we have a we have a world and life view that is biblically framed, but he gives us a filter through which to evaluate what is saying. Is it consistent with the word of God? Because not only does, does God not contradict himself in his word, God's special revelation does not contradict general revelation. And general revelation, rightly understood, does not contradict special revelation. So we have a frame, we have a filter, and we have a focus. And the special, God's special revelation is the instrument to give us that frame, that filter, and that focus when we prayerfully surrender to its preaching and to our personal study. Berean Christians who received the word with eagerness while they examined the scriptures daily to see if those things are so. Now, with the word of God, you can know the God of the word who is revealing himself in revelation and revealing himself with specificity and clarity as creator, redeemer, sustainer, and judge in his word. And we start right with the book of, right with the book of Genesis. And then God begins to unfold it uh, in, in his glorious testimony for us. So last week, we took time to begin this study of the sanctity of God. And I'm going to sum up everything we looked at last week. If you weren't with us, you can get the um, MP, was it MP3 or whatever? You can go somewhere. You can find it out there. It's that I just learned that not long ago. It's in the cloud somewhere. It's in the cloud. And maybe where my kids used to accuse that I would dwell from time to time. It's in the cloud. Okay. So, but you can get it. But here is what we looked at in these questions. And I just used the catechism to sum up. What is God? Well, God is a spirit. In other words, wait, what about Jesus? Well, that is God's son taking upon himself flesh. But until then, in eternity, God is spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a spirit, and he is infinite, and he is eternal, and he is unchangeable. Can I give you another word for that? God is immutable. Nothing gets added to God. God is not in need of anything. God doesn't grow. God doesn't become something. God is. I am that I am, not I'm becoming something. He is. That's who God is. I am. He is immutable. He is unchangeable. And he is unchangeable in his being. That is who he actually is, his very essence, that who God is. And then we begin to look at the attributes of God in his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. That is not an exalt listing of his of his attributes if you want to find a bigger list just go to the larger catechism but it is an essential list of his attributes that are given to us that God's wisdom is displayed God's power is displayed God's holiness is displayed God's justice goodness and truth now I want you to take a look at where holiness is and I want to remind you of this in just a moment and that when the Westminster divines put that together they you'll look 
can they'll say that he is unchangeable in his being, in his being, wisdom, power, then comes holiness, and then three more afterwards. Holiness is right in the middle. And I think there's a reason why they put it there. And I'll try to share that with you in just a moment. That led us to question number five. And question number five is, are there more gods than one? That's a good question. In just a minute, you're going to find out how important and why you ought to ask that question. Are there more gods than one? Well, the answer is there is only one true and living God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one. God says, I am that I am. So God is one. He is a living and true God. Now, what else did we learn? Well, the next thing that we learned last week is how many persons are there? in the Godhead. And this is where we want to drill down this week. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one, the same in substance, equal in power, and in glory. Now, I want to remind you, up until 2,000 years ago, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelt as Spirit. Then Jesus comes into the world, and he humbles himself, not by subtraction, but by addition. He takes upon himself humanity, a true human body and a true human soul. And as he takes it upon himself, he then enters into that relationship where he is submitting to the Father in his incarnate state to accomplish the will of the Father from which the work of the Holy Spirit will bring to consummation. And as he does that, This body he took upon himself, he is raised from the grave, and that body, the soul is brought from Hades, the intermediate state, the body from the grave at that three days, glorified, and it will be with him forever. Forever. Which becomes an extraordinary blessing for us, dare I... (laughs) digress off to a rabbit trail, which you need to praise God for because now you'll be able to see him. If he was in his unveiled state, you could not look upon him. Not even the angels can. They're equipped with the wings to keep them in the air, to cover their eyes. No man can look upon him and live. It is only his veiled existence that he let Moses see when he hid him in the cleft of the rock to show him the backside of his glory. Yet you will not only see the incarnate Christ, you will see the marks upon him declaring his love for you to save you from your sins, just like Thomas did. And you, I, like Thomas, will cry out, my Lord and my God. There is the glory of the Trinity that has now been displayed for us. And this is crucial that you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It's obviously one of the great heresies that invaded even the Reformed Church uh, and uh, took off people into, uh, into theological error and heresy, Unitarianism. That, um, that, and the, these were the early, the early challenges 
um, there were two great challenges, the challenge to the doctrine of the Trinity and the challenge to the two natures of Christ, 100% God and 100% man. Those were the two great challenges. Well, we're going to take on this matter of Jesus later, but right now I want to take you through the doctrine of the Trinity. You got your Bibles ready? We need to take a look at this triune God because this should affect every... Listen to me. If we do our worship right, nobody should leave here not knowing that we believe after a worship service in one God who dwells in three persons. Nobody should ever be able to talk to us over any length of time and not realize that we serve the one true and living God who created as Trinity, who redeemed as Trinity, who sustains and provides as Trinity. One God in three persons. And it is built into the scripture and substantiated and progressively unfolded for us. How is it? How does that happen? Well, you ready? Got your pens ready? We're going to do 10 things to give this to you from the doctrine of the Trinity. Oh, one other thing. But pastor, you just said God is a spirit. Well, doesn't the Bible say we're upheld by God's right arm? And doesn't the Bible say that the eye of the Lord is upon the earth? In fact, doesn't it say the eye of the, of the Lord is upon the whole earth? Yes, it does. Now, what is that? <laughs> that is something we call when you're studying your Bible. You ready? Okay. That's what we call. And I know this is a big one, but it's okay. We, we can do this. We can do this. Alabama Auburn education is about to come to the top right here. All right. Right behind East Carolina. And we are four and one. I just wanted to mention that. So, so here is, these are what we call anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphism. You see, we can't think in abstractions. We are made with a true body and a true soul. We can't think in abstraction. So when God is describing who he is and what he does, he will bow, he will graciously um, surrender to baby talk. And that is he will put who he is and what he does in human terms so that we can understand it. When you think of the strength of someone, what do you normally think of? The right arm. So it's not that God has a right arm. No, God is a spirit. He has no bodily parts. So, but why does it say God's right arm? Because that's how we think. When we think of strength, we think of a right arm. When it says the eye of the Lord goes to and fro upon the earth, that is not a 1,000 pound eyeball rolling around the, the, uh, the earth's sphere. That's not what it is. That what you have is a Lord trying to tell you something. I am omnipotent, almighty. I am omniscient. I am omnipresent. I am, um, um, I am the Lord your God and there is none like me, but I am personal. I am personal. And so he takes our bodily parts from our person to describe the actions he does whereby he has created us 
to engage in those actions. And he uses these bodily parts to teach us who he is and what he does. And there's also, in case that's not bad enough, there are also anthropopathisms. Uh, anthropo, that is anthro, man, po, like, um, morphisms, body parts. There are anthropopathism, pathos, emotions. So it will talk about God grieving and God uh, laughing. And so you are seeing now that those are really describing the dynamics of who God is, but they put it in human like emotional experiences so we can understand of something about him. So there are anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms that are given to us about who God is this immutable God uh, who exists. Now, look with me in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It is right there that the doctrine of the Trinity is not developed in detailed, but accommodated with integrity. It is not developed in detail, but it is accommodated and anticipated with integrity. And the doctrine of the Trinity is going to continue to unfold throughout the 1600 years of progressive revelation as God continues to let us know who he is. And God, and so why, how about this doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament? You will run into people that as you attempt to take refuge in your triune God, they'll say, well, that's, listen, that's a heresy. What do you mean three gods? One God, three persons. That doesn't make sense. That's illogical. And we would say to people, it's not illogical. It is supralogical, but it is not illogical. There is one God who is, uh, in essence, one God, but in subsistence dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible gives us that embryonic truth in Genesis 1-1 and then begins to flesh it out and grow it for us with clarity as God reveals himself throughout Scripture. So how does God do this? Well, one of the ways that God begins to let us know who he is is by taking on the gods of this world. And that's what Genesis 1-1 does. In the beginning, God did what? He created what? The heavens and the earth and, uh, and all that is in it and the Spirit of God. There's the accommodation of one of the persons of the Trinity for us. And the Spirit of God hovered over it. You go to John 1 and you find out that the Father who created ex nihilo, bringing everything out of nothing, did so through His Son, for His Son, as the Spirit of God. It's a Trinitarian act. The Father authors it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit, um, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit superintends it. But as you, as we begin to look at that throughout the scriptures, we can see God accommodating it right here because the word for God singular is not used. El. Here's the word that's used. Elohim. But what's interesting, when God says Elohim, he never uses the verb to be for the plural, are, he only uses the singular. 
Elohim is. Now, if he was talking about multiple gods, he would say Elohim. And by the way, El Elohim is a plurality. But yet when he uses the plurality that accommodates the doctrine of the Trinity, he affirms its singularity by declaring that the Lord God is not God are gods are it's the triune God is he is one God. But yet in the context, we find a further anticipation of the Trinity. So take a look with me as you go from Genesis one, where Elohim, that the Lord God is. And, and oh, don't, I don't miss this. We're about to go through the creation. God's going to make, God's going to form the earth in the first three days. God's going to fill the earth in the next three days. And you're going to see sun and moon and stars. Do you, have y'all ever heard the term clickbait? Y'all know what that means? That's something that they put on social media. If you read it, it probably is not anything that's going to be in the article. But they know if you read that, it'll make you click the link to go to the article. And if they get enough clicks, then they can charge more money for their advertising. They call it clickbait. That is giving. And by the way, we already had that in newspapers. Newspaper, they hired one person. They didn't write a single thing. They'd read the articles and write the headlines to try to get you to read it. That's what people would do in journalism, and that's what they do in social media. Well, in a sanctified sense, Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1, particularly 1 through 11, is clickbait. Because surrounding Israel, when this is written through the author Moses, surrounding Israel are people who worship the God of the sun. The moon, the stars, the plants. Surrounding them was pagan polytheism. And now Genesis 1-1 drops the bombshell. Those aren't gods. There is only one God who created all of those things. It is confrontational. This is counter-cultural. This is not cultural accommodation. This is cultural confrontation. And so that's why when Paul gets to Mars Hill, what are they saying? He's talking about strange deities, deities that made our deities. Who is this Paul? We want to hear more from him. So here is this glorious statement that the Lord God is the one who created all these things that you're worshiping in your polytheistic paganism. But now you see, even as he does this, you see this accommodation and anticipation. Slip down with me to verse 26, Genesis 1, 26. Well, I've got to do, I've got to go a lot faster now. Here we go. Then God said, let what? Us. Then who said? God said what? Let us make man. By the way, do you see how, why we, why we use the word person when we speak of God? Because he's in relationship. To be personal, you're in relationship. And there is relationship in the Trinity, yet one God. 
So here he says in Genesis 1:26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, that doesn't give you the details of the doctrine of the Trinity, but it anticipates it. It accommodates it. And as the doctrine of God unfolds in the scripture, now it makes sense why God speaking from the singular would speak in terms of his actions with plurality. Let us make man in our image because God is creating Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you see it in other passages too. You got your Bibles? Go with me to uh, Proverbs chapter, um, Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30. Now, by the way, I hope I, I jotted this one down right. I did this one from uh, memory, and that's a that's a dangerous thing to do. Proverbs chapter 30. I do hope I got this right. I was looking. For, I, this was a prophet. This was a proverb of of, um, of Agar, but I think I got it right. Proverbs 30. Yeah, slip down uh, to verse. Four, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? You see the transcendence of God? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely. You know, every word of God proves true. Do you see the anticipation right there in the holy inspired gathering of divinely ordained general wisdom in the book of Proverbs? Would you go back to Genesis chapter 11 with me? Go back to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. You remember the Tower of Babel, verse 6? And the Lord, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language. Hear the counsel of the Trinity is accommodated by the plurality of the pronoun as God comes down to bring judgment upon Babel and the creation of the ethnicities of the world. Let me give you a third thing. The third thing is not only the L of the name for God with the plurality, though the singular verb to be. Secondly, the, uh, the accommodations with the plural pronouns throughout the Old Testament. I've only given you a couple of them. Well, I'm going to give you one more, okay? Because it's one that you need to, you need to know about. Go to Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse, uh, and let's just, um, well, I, I need to go ahead and, because there's something else I need to say. Let me go ahead and get you to read from verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. The earthly king did what? He died. The king of kings is self-existent, self-sufficient, and is forever. 
He is high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Notice, holy, the, the, the normative. Holy, holy, the comparative. Holy, 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 the superlative. Is the, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of, see the singularity, His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. There's the, the anticipation of what we studied this morning from Romans chapter 5. Now look at the next verse. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Now, do these give us the doctrine of the Trinity in its fullness yet? No. Isaiah goes on. I had the opportunity in seminary to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 11. And uh, so I can go to other texts with you. But I just wanted you to see this, um, this second dynamic of the texts that, uh, that are anticipating the full-blown, clear doctrine of the Trinity as it unfolds and is declared in the New Testament. Number three is out of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm not going to turn there. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. Lord thy God is one. Echad. I explained that to you last week. Echad is the word singular with the dynamic of plurality. It is singular, not with singularity, but singular with plurality. Uh, it was used to describe the cluster of grapes that they came back with an echad grape. Now, that wasn't a 600-pound grape that was bending the pole. That was a cluster of grapes that bent the pole, but it was a cluster. Therefore, it was called an echad grape, a one grape. Um, uh, if you would, um, now let me show you another place that it is used. Take your Bibles and go back with me uh, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. You're not worn out yet, are you? You still got just a few minutes left. Don't wear out on me. Genesis, go to, go to Genesis 2. Take a look down at the marriage event. Verse 23, then the Lord God said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become echad, flesh, one flesh, one with plurality. He could have chosen the Hebrew word one with singularity, but he uses the Hebrew word one flesh with plurality. And again, you see this is the word that's used to speak of God and that the Lord God is Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is, not are, is one Echad. Yet the word accommodates 
the multiplicity of the Trinity. Number four, the doctrine of the Trinity is further revealed by the theophanies in the Old Testament. You'll notice they're usually identified by the phrase, the angel of the Lord. That's a very careful rendering in your Bible. There are times when an angel comes and he's called an angel of the Lord or an angel from the Lord. But when you see this phrase, the definite article, the angel of the Lord, then what you have there, as affirmed in the New Testament by Jesus himself, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, with Jacob, with Abraham, in the burning bush with Moses, that phrase, the angel of the Lord, is the pre-incarnate appearance and ministry of the second person of the Trinity. And once we have the incarnate Christ, it's never used again in the New Testament. For now, we have the incarnate second person of the Trinity for all eternity. Number five, the Messiah, the Messianic prophecies. I'm just going to ask you to take my word for it, which is a dangerous thing to do. But feel free to go look at Messianic prophecies and how many times they say this. Who that God says, I will send my servant, the Messiah. And who will come? The Messiah is the eternal father, the everlasting God, the prince of peace. There, the messianic prophecies are couched by God sending God to become a man to save us. Number six, in terms of the doctrine of the, of the Trinity, I've already mentioned. I'll just refer to it again. God is personal in his being, and that means he is relational. Whenever God speaks of himself person, as a person, then we know he has relationship. And that relationship was the self-existent, self-sufficient relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one in three persons for all eternity. Number seven. Note the New Testament assumption. Now, listen, all of these, most of these New Testament authors were, were educated what? They were educated as little Jewish boys. And they would have heard the Shema. They would have heard all these things. And then when they realized the deity of Jesus, and when they realized the deity of the Holy Spirit, and they realized the doctrine of the Trinity, notice none of them stumble all over themselves to say, now listen, I know in the Old Testament we didn't believe this, but now in the New Testament we believe this. Or we've got to make a correction from the Old Testament. Though They saw the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity as both consistent with and congruent with what had been revealed of God in the Old Testament. They didn't say, oh, we got this new idea of God. No, they saw it as being congruent with and consistent with everything that they had learned from the Old Testament. Number eight, all of your great creeds and hymns in the church have unabashedly set forth the majesty of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They set forth the majesty of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And number nine. Um, number nine. Our great privileges in serving Christ. We worship Him. 
We pray to him and we evangelize and bring people to him. All of that involves our embracing of the doctrine of the Trinity. When we worship, how are we supposed to worship? It's a Trinitarian worship. You remember what Jesus says? The Father seeks true worshipers. Who seeks true worshipers? The Father, who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now listen, you and I can praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We do it every Lord's Day. We sing the doxology here. The Trinity is praised for its one God, but the Trinity is also praised in Trinitarian clarity. We praise the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And what we do in worship, we also do in prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, learn to pray how? Our Father in my name. I'm going to preach on that next Sunday. We have access to the Father in the name of Jesus as a legacy blessing. Thirdly, we're praying in the Spirit. Well, Harry, what about the Great Commission? That's Trinitarian. Go and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, Jesus has a harvest. And we're supposed to be, here's coming back together, we're supposed to be praying for the who to send forth workers. Who are we to pray to send forth workers? The Lord of the harvest. Who is the Lord of the harvest? The Holy Spirit. He is the Lord of the harvest. The maker of the harvest is Jesus. The owner of the harvest is the Father. But it is the Holy Spirit that sends us in His power and our gifting to go as harvesters, workers in the harvest. What about providence? Trusting in God. God my Father, whose Son intercedes for me. And the Holy Spirit is interceding for me with utterings that are too deep to be. I mean, with word, with language that is too deep to be uttered. Here, the doctrine of the Trinity in, it declares creation. The Father authored it. The Son accomplished it. The Holy Spirit applied it. Redemption. The Father authored our salvation to the praise of His glorious grace. The Son accomplished it. And the Holy Spirit is applying it. Providence. The Father is over us. The Son intercedes for us. And the Holy Spirit upholds us. And when you get to the judgment, it's Trinitarian. The Father appoints His Son as the judge. And the Holy Holy Spirit is there to superintend the angels in the time of the judgment itself. We are clearly to be a Trinitarian people. And therefore, without any defensiveness, the Great Commission comes to us. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the... Can someone give me the next word? Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not names. Not names. Name. Can I just show you one more thing? Just to, because there's two things you've got to stay away from the doctrine of the Trinity. One is to try to explain it with illustrations. They all fail. Yes, the egg fails. 
Yes, ice water and, and ice water and slush fail. Every illustrate, you can't illustrate the doctrine of the Trinity. We have to say it. One God dwells in three persons. Then we have to do something called knowledge by negation. That doesn't mean three gods who get along great. That doesn't mean one God who has three different uniforms and responsibilities. No, it's one God in three persons. And Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. One, yet not three roles, but one God in three persons. And sometimes you get to see it all. Can I just show you that in closing? Here, got, got your Bibles? Go with me, first of all, to the birth of Jesus. Go with me to Luke. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Luke 1 and verse... Uh, let's see... Um, Luke 1 and verse 26. This is the Annunciation. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So God the Father has sent the angel and the angel has told her that the Lord is with her. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called what? The son of the most high. So the most high has sent her to tell her The son of the most high will come as a man through her and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's his human father. And um, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how shall this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel shall say, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. There's your trinity. The father sends and announces The Son is going to come forth of the Most High and will do so by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High. Go with me, if you would, to um, uh, go with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Here in Matthew chapter 3. We find Jesus being ordained into his public ministry at age 30, being baptized. If you want to know how he was baptized, go read Numbers 8. But be prepared to change denominations, some of you. Look at the numbers. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. But go with me to Matthew chapter 3. 
So here is, um, here is Jesus coming to be baptized. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In one event, the Trinity in full action. The Father speaking from heaven, the Spirit of God coming upon Jesus, the Son of God. Well, um, you've, I've already quoted the Great Commission to you. Uh, let me just go to the place I'll end tonight, and that is in 1 Corinthians 13. It's a place I end on many Lord's Days with you. It is the Pauline benediction. Paul understood the doctrine of the Trinity and incorporated it into the good word of God that is given uh, two, I'm sorry, not first, uh, first Corinthians 16, not 13, 16. Um, into the good word of God that is given, uh, to the people of God. That good word of a benediction where he then declares the grace of the Lord Jesus, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the love of God the Father be with you. I, Paul, see verse 21, I, Paul, writing this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Having declared this trinity, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the love of God the Father, he then dismissed them. So let me finish with this. When you leave here tonight and somebody meets you at the back, and says, you've only got one word to tell me who God is. What would you say to him? What would you say to him? If you are like most evangelicals today, you would probably say, God is love. And you would be right. God is love. But if you only got one word to tell someone who God is, there is a four-letter word that the Bible uses. And it's not love. It is that attribute of all attributes. Holy. 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 It is the one attribute that modifies every other attribute. God's Spirit is holy. God's love is holy. God's grace is holy. That is who our God is. And that means holiness not only means purity. It means incomprehension. Incomparability. No one can be compared to him. The Lord our God alone is God. Our Trinitarian God is glorious and is to be praised. Would you please stand?
for the benediction. And this is where I would like to give the benediction as Paul gives it to the church at Rome. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable is his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and unto him are all things. To him be glory now and forevermore. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whom I take refuge. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.